Uh, there's a few people I would like to introduce. Uh, I'd like to introduce my boss, Mary Blair, Dr. Mary Blair, who is Director of Development, who is waving at the front. Uh, next to her is Ben Morton Wright, who works for the school in Asia. And somewhere else is Sean Moriarty, who is Deputy Director of ODAR and uh, is also someone who works in our office. And I'd like you to take the opportunity to talk to as many of the LSE staff, we've waving at the back there, um, as, as possible. I also see Lord Desai standing in front of me. He's not so easy to spot now he's cut his hair. <laughs> so do take an opportunity to meet with lots of people that you uh, haven't seen for some time. As I say, welcome. Uh, prior to this gathering, I've been meeting with the alumni leaders are in India, and we've had representation from all over the country, and over the following year, we will be putting together some much more positive information and activities for alumni in India, uh, with the view to increasing our activities in India for the future. But that's all I'm going to say. If you have any questions of me, please feel free to ask me any tonight. But now I would like to introduce our director, Howard Davis. Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you all very much for coming this evening. Um, and it's great to see such a good turnout. Uh, this is, in fact, the third um, Asia Forum that the school has held. We held the first one uh, three years ago in Bangkok, and then one in Hong Kong, um, and now we come to Delhi. Uh, and of course, although most of the people here are from our Indian alumni base, it's been great to see that a number of people have come from other countries, from even uh, as far afield as uh, Israel, um, indeed from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, I've seen from Hong Kong, from Australia, and from Malaysia. So we really do have a broad group of alumni here this evening, and it's nice to see that people are supporting these uh, fora, even outside their home base. These events, of course, don't happen just by accident, and it's been attributable to a large amount of work by a lot of people here, um, and particularly, of course, the uh, volunteers, um, including all the alumni chapter heads in India, uh, Ashok Desai, Dora Sopariwala, Neville Tooley, who's responsible for the art, and he'll say a little bit about that later, uh, Atul Chand, Ambar Timblo and his family, Sarat Chandran, Subrati Mukherjee, then uh, the Gurukul Foundation, Shafi Mather, we'll hear from a bit later as well, and Ruth Kataguri, who's running our office here, who's been tireless in assembling all of these events. Now, tomorrow, of course, is the big day, and we have a great program, I believe, tomorrow. And it is a celebration, um, a slightly sad day in one sense, because, of course, we are particularly celebrating the contribution to the school made by my predecessor, but three, I think, I.G. Patel, who of course uh, died last year. Uh, we were very 
Sorry about that. He continued to be a great supporter. When I first came to India as director, uh, he met me, came to lunch, and was still a great and active supporter of the school. So we're very sorry that he left us, but we hope that the event we've organized today and tomorrow will be a suitable uh, commemoration of his life and of his contribution to the school. And I know you all uh, want to agree with me that his contribution to the LSE was very great uh, indeed. The aim of our Asia Fora is very straightforward. It is to raise the profile of the school in Asia as a whole and also to allow us to connect and reconnect with our alumni community but also to strengthen our research and teaching links with countries in Asia. We are, I think, succeeding in that endeavour. Uh, in India, our Indian student numbers have actually tripled over the last 10 years. We now have 250 Indian students uh, in the school, but we think we could do better than that. Demand for our places is, of course, very strong. It's a very competitive school to get into. I always like to say that to our alumni because it makes you all feel rather clever um, <laughs> at uh, having got one of our degrees. Uh, but it is a tough place to get into, but our Indian students do extremely well when they are at the school and make a great contribution to the school's life. So we'd like to see more of them. We know that in order to do that, we have to attract more scholarship support, and that is something we've been working on, and we'll have some announcements to make tomorrow in that connection, which I think will give us quite a boost, and we want to establish and develop our research links with India, which are good, but could be better, and we'll have some exciting announcements about that tomorrow as well. Now, I recognize that this, therefore, is a little bit of a teaser as a uh, speech, because all I'm doing is making sure that you actually turn up um, tomorrow to hear the meat of the event. But anyway, a pleasant party outside is not really the occasion for a serious speech. So I'll simply say that I believe your school is in good hearts. Demand for what we offer is very strong. Our profile on all of the various lead tables is very high. We have, I think, uh, become the kind of university of globalization, if I might say so. We were already a kind of global village in the middle of a global city, and we therefore appear uh, to have struck a chord, if you like, um, as globalization has expanded and people have become more interested in its consequences. However, I would like to introduce one other person who would like to say a couple of words to you this evening, who will be speaking uh, tomorrow. Now, you may have uh, noticed, I only came in this morning, but I gather that the weather was a bit doubtful yesterday. Uh, it's not supposed to rain at this time of the year. It did. We were worried about today. So we thought, well, what can we do? Uh, we will need to ensure that we change the climate. And uh, there is only one man in the world who is able to do that these days. Uh, and that is Sir Nicholas Stern, um, who has 
just, of course, completed his great report for the British government on climate change. Uh, of course, that's not his only expertise. His prime research interest through his career has, in fact, been in economic development in rural India. Uh, he is speaking uh, tomorrow, but he's going to say just a few words to us this evening uh, as a kind of advance uh, sort of commercial, I guess, uh, for tomorrow's main event. So I'm delighted uh, to welcome someone who many of you may have been taught by because he was, of course, at the school for uh, many years in the past. It was Sir Tick. Thank you very much, Howard, and it's an enormous pleasure for me to be back amongst people from the LSE. Um, I feel very deeply LSE. Um, my mother was at the LSE during the war, studied with uh, Harold Lasky, and all we heard about was, as kids was that the right place to be educated was LSE. Um, I disappointed her first time round, but... Um, I did come back and join the LSE in 1986, and I have to say, those years teaching at the LSE were the happiest and most productive years of my academic uh, life. The students that uh, I had at that time were just extraordinary, and particularly extraordinary amongst them, of course, were the students from the LSE, from LSE students from India. And um, I'll just tell you one story of the kind of thing that happens to you when you teach students, particularly students in India at the LSE. I was lecturing on the MSc on uh, economic development and I was telling people about the virtues of food for work, cash for work programs, self the importance of self-selection in social security and so on. And I gave, uh, as an example, the... Um, the food for work scheme in uh, the early 1970s in Maharashtra and how important that was in getting through the bad weather and the uh, difficult harvest and climate, difficult harvest and uh, monsoon of that time. And I thought I did quite a good job and I thought I knew something about it. And um, somebody put his hand up at the back, clearly from India, and said, Professor Stern, I think that was actually a rather interesting account but perhaps you would allow me to add something. And of course, he had been uh, a district commissioner in Maharashtra during that period and had administered the Employment Guarantee Scheme. And I got sort of 7 out of 10, I think, for uh, my lecture. But that's the kind of thing, you know, when you teach at other universities, you see very nice kids of 18 or 19 um, working very hard. They're a lovely lot. But, and you see those at the LSE too, and we celebrate them. But what you also see is people with real experience, people with uh, that kind of background. And that's what makes LSE such a special place. Another thing that makes um, LSE such a special place is we've learned never to dwell on agreement. And the uh, interchange and the challenge that you get from LSE students is the most stimulating thing that imaginable for a university teacher. And that's why all of us love so much uh, teaching there. 
you also have fantastic colleagues. And uh, all of you know, lots of my colleagues uh, at the LSE, still my colleagues in my view, um, what makes, what brings you to university is a colleague. And um, the set of colleagues that you can talk to, the set of colleagues you can argue with, the set of colleagues who can teach you about things that you don't know about, and they do. And that group of colleagues, colleagues in the LSC is just extraordinary. Um, when I was there in 1986, um, my closest collaborators uh, were Tony Atkinson and Mervyn King. And those were the most productive. You ask any of the, those other two what were the most productive years of their life, they'll tell you their years at the LSE. Mervyn now is struggling with setting interest rates in the UK as Governor of the Bank of England and uh, Tony Atkinson wandered off to various places uh, but I'm sure that uh, he felt that LSE was his uh, natural home. You know, he went to be Professor at Cambridge and Master of Oxford College and trivial things like this. But what, what, really, what really mattered was uh, the LSE. Now let me just say two more things. Um, I spoke at the LSE right after the publication of the report on the economics of climate change. Um, I thought a lot about Palampur, the village in Muradabad district of UP where I've worked for so many years. And what matters about climate change is what it does particularly to the people of poor countries, the disruption of the monsoon, the melting of the glaciers in uh, uh, the Himalayas, what that will do to the flow of the rivers in the dry, in the dry season and so on. Um, but I spoke, when I was speaking, I gave the first Gurukul lecture. Um, I also explained to them what Gurukul meant. Um, it's a place where students really respect and look after their teachers, which I thought was just a wonderful uh, idea. And I'm sure that the LSE will become even more a place that uh, we could describe as a, a Gurukul. But the, the Gurukul students that I saw and met were absolutely outstanding. Fine people, people that India can be proud of, and we're very proud that they came with us to the LSE. Now let me close on one last thing. I said that people come to the LSE because of the extraordinary mix and talent of the students and the challenging students. They come because of the quality of the colleagues. In my place, in my case, I also came because IG asked me to come. And IG hired me. He looked after me. He looked after all of us. And he was a wonderful person to talk to. A, a real LSE person. Constant inquiring mind. Constant challenge. Constant moving forward as the evidence uh, came in. He constantly asked what matters, what makes the world a better place, how do we understand things. He was the absolute model of what LSE was all about and he was why so many of us came and it's because of the legacy and the kinds of um, excitement that IG brought to the LSE that's still there at the LSE that lives on that makes us so fond of the place. So let's celebrate tonight, celebrate tomorrow, uh, a wonderful director of the LSE, I.G. Patel. Thank you very much. I'm going to say just one last sentence. I'm very happy that we have 
Vivi Patel here tonight. And if we could have a round of applause for Vivi, who looked after us too. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gents. Um, do feel free to enjoy the hospitality, and we will be back with you again fairly shortly. Thank you. I decided to hide a book 
or hand away theatre so that the next day I would be the first person to get that book. And lo and behold, the next day I come to the library and the whole radiator system is changed in LSE. And that book was never found by me or by any of our colleagues who needed to research it. And the one thing that stuck in my mind from LSE is the need for a great library, the need for a great archive. And that the hub of a learning system, the hub of an educational system is that archive. And India, more than any other country, has lost the ability to inspire ourselves into falling in love with learning, falling in love with knowledge, and creating that kind of great knowledge-based institutional framework in which the finest minds come from her. Since LSE, the one thing that sort of became my obsession was to build, hopefully, India's greatest university, to build it from scratch, to build it for the arts and humanities, and to build it without any form of patronage. No government support, no corporate sponsorship, no philanthropy. To show the country and outside India that the arts can build its own infrastructure on its own terms without compromising its creative and intellectual integrity. And systematically, I decided, how would one do that in a country like India? How do you bring your developmental theories that are taught in LSE and Oxford and implemented on a daily level? How do you transform idea into action in a country whose disrespect for action and its idealism is so paramount? And how do you make people take something seriously? How do you take something which people essentially disrespect, people dis essentially are negligent towards, who don't understand that the art object is simply not about aesthetics. It's about history, it's about finance, and it's about development. That every art object has inherent in it four dimensions. The aesthetic, the historical, the financial, and the developmental. And India, more than any other country, has disrespected the developmental and financial nature and dimension of art. It focused on the aesthetic and begrudgingly it incorporated the historical after independence. And so I decided to give value to art. I built India's first auction house. I built today what we have the world's largest archive and library on India's and Asia's contemporary culture. Nearly two million documents and artworks in a systematic way from great African tribal culture, even though that's got nothing to do with India, to the finest sculptures, to the finest contemporary art, to the maps, the documents, the miniatures, the wood carvings, Film memorabilia. Today, Oceans is the world's largest collectors of film memorabilia from around the world. It's the largest. That sculpture over there was a gift to modern grandeur by Val Kilmer. And today, India owns, through Oceans, the world's largest archive of modern grandeur. The world's largest archive on Malvin Mundo, on Orson Welles, on Groucho Marx, on a whole host of, on Star Wars, on a whole host of things. Those photographs are the first photographs when Johnny Weissmuller was taught how to swim to become Tarzan. 
each little archival moment is what we are trying to understand in India. And India did not understand, unlike the West, that unless you incorporate history, you institutionalize history, you build the monuments in which history is shared with the world, you are not going to transform your country. So in my small way, one is trying to build that institutional framework in which the arts, obviously the financial value has now drastically appreciated. What you see behind, I suppose six years ago, would barely be worth $100,000. Today what you see behind you is more than $10 million. And yet, it is treated as if, what's the big deal? But today, the art is potentially a great asset. And India, more than any other country, has 5,000 years of cultural, artistic heritage. And most of it lies in the black economy. It is serving no role, it is generating no wealth, it is creating no knowledge base, it is not integrating itself into the identity of our people. And as a result, the very manner by which India is growing as a nation is completely flawed because her greatest asset is totally underutilized. Her greatest asset base lies underground and for 35 years has been systematically smuggled out of the country. And unless this responsibility is taken on by the private sector, because the government today is incapable and unwilling and unable to take care of the world's largest architectural and artistic heritage. It has 39,450 monuments in India. And the government legitimately has resources for 280 of. So the scale of the decay, the scale of the negligence is paramount. And unless the private sector and people who studied economics, people who've understood development, people who understand what it is to create wealth, and more than create wealth, to systematically redistribute the wealth. If a creative mind simply creates wealth, they become a businessman. But if the creative mind simultaneously takes on the responsibilities to not just generate wealth, but also to redistribute that wealth, you then can maintain the integrity of the academia, the scholarly, and the creative worlds. And that is the whole process which one is trying to put into action. And hopefully, a bit of awareness among even if five, six of you suddenly open your mind and understand at the heart of India, there's only two things India has which can truly make her a, a people which will be respected on a global level. There's a lot of talk of globalization and a lot of very false figures given about. 500 million Indians do not have the physical strength to stand in front of a painting and have a mental dialogue with it. That is the brutal fact about India. And unless this process fundamentally changes, India is not going to emerge as a great superpower. And just to leave on a slight note of comparison, China has taken on responsibility of building 100 Confucius centers all around the world. She's allocated 45,000 crores to build these centers around the world. India's budget is 75 crores. 
forget the budget, think of the vision. You have one of the world's greatest artistic cultural heritages. It's still a living heritage. It is still the largest source of knowledge in India. And yet it is treated, I feel in a way, like those piano players in a hotel lobby. Everyone's doing their little job and the pure baker boy is playing the piano, talking about things which really no one wants to respect. But at the end of the day, what was once the distraction will become the focus of concentrated developmental policy in India. And mark my words, in 10 years from now, India's developmental policies will be driven by our artistic and cultural sectors. And that is not an idle threat, it is something which is happening and anyone who knows anything about the art world has seen a market which was barely a $1 million market being transformed into a $350 million market in six years without trying to create wealth, simply by building knowledge and disseminating those knowledge bases in a systematic way. So I hope that some of you will look at some of these pieces, ask a few questions to yourself, open your minds that there is an art object, there is an aesthetic object, a historical object, a financial object, a developmental object, and potentially one of the most important assets that India has in building its civilizational future. Thank you. Shows the breadth of interest that LSE alumni uh, end up doing, uh, and so I'd like to thank Neville for his words. Finally, I would like to introduce Howard Machen from the Gurukul Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, after the kind words about the Gurukul program from Nick Stern, I would like to bring to your attention the excellent initiative taken by a group of the alumni of this program, now in its ninth year. The alumni have formed the Chiefling Gurukul Foundation here in Delhi, a public trust in Indian law, for the purposes of extending and deepening the links between the UK, the European Union, and India. By deepening them through conferences, academic exchanges, research, and publications. This body now exists and membership will be open, obviously, to all Chiefling Gurukul scholars, alumni, and to all other interested alumni of the school. Details of its membership how to join its website and the details of its first small conference next March will be available in January and will be circulated to many of you. I ask you to take this information and to follow this space. The present ninth batch of Gurukul scholars are with us here this evening and I hope you may have the opportunity to meet some of them and to discuss their work. Thank you very much.
you very much, uh, Mr. Howard there. Um, I'd like to thank all of our speakers this evening, it's been very interesting, I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I hope that you will all be uh, up early in the morning to get into registration for the Asia Forum. For those people who weren't able to register for the forum, I am informed that if you were to turn up at about 1.30 with some photo ID, there is a chance, but only a chance, that you could get into the afternoon sessions. So uh, if you want to see the people on the uh, reception desk here, or just come along about 1.30 tomorrow, there may be a chance that you could get into the afternoon sessions. I shall leave you there. Thank you very much once again for coming.